0: Hi, I'm Liz Guinness and welcome to Talking Australia. Today I'm chatting with Brigitte Muir, one of my all-time adventure heroes. Brigitte was the first Australian woman to summit Everest and the first woman ever to climb the seven summits. Her take on the world is nothing short of extraordinary and it's my complete pleasure to chat with her today. So sit back and enjoy the conversation. for joining Brigitte and I on this episode of Talking Australia. Obviously with Everest there were four attempts at Everest um maybe if you could just um run us through why why four what 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 was a series of kind of events at those different times that that made that the case. Yes the first two times um I went with John to
1: the north ridge of Everest. We um
0: we were so sorry, sorry to interrupt just for a second, no, but I know right. that you said you and John obviously were married and then separated. Oh yeah, I forgot. You. And we got back together. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I'm thinking this is a really amicable separation.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. We were back together by then. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. After pondering on our lives and yeah, decided so to give it To keep some time goal. apart. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. John invited me to to try again, and I said yes. And so in, when was the first time I went there? 93, we joined a group from Out There Trekking, um, a company belonging to some friends in England. That was the beauty of being in the business of climbing big mountains. We knew lots of people and that meant that when I was looking for sponsorship, I could leave it to the last minute to to join the trip because it's always how sponsorship happens somehow, you know. You get it at Mm. the 11th hour and not before. Yeah. And that was easier knowing that there was a, a space pencilled for me or for us on the trip. So 93. Well, the weather was really, really bad, and we didn't get very high. Um, Camp two, camp three, I think. Um, Only two people on the trip went to the summit and back. There was uh, Maciek Berbeka, who's an amazing um, Polish climber. Who since died on the big mountain, unfortunately, and. like pashurpa who was also an amazing climber and also died on another big mountain high altitude climbing is very very dangerous unfortunately mm. so in 93 nothing happened as far as me getting to the summit um, 95 back to Tibet and Cho and in 95 uh, John got really sick at the last camp at camp four 8000 something. And so we had to come down. Um, it, was, it was just a question of knowing what was more important, getting to the summit or losing my husband. And there was, you know. <laughs> no,
0: no choice?
1: No choice, no choice. No. It, was, it was obvious what to do. And then I went back up after um, going back down to base camp with him. I went back up with the last group of our team to go for the summit. And I got to the last mm. camp, everybody was already there. And what happened was that I was more acclimatized than they were because I'd already been there once before, but Mm. I didn't realize it. I didn't realize that their brains were not working quite well. Um, We all set up. I was the last one to set up because I didn't have any oxygen cylinders. So I had to do a bit of rummaging and I was cooking for everybody. So anyway, um, they set off and I followed. And as we got close to uh, the summit bridge, at about eight thousand five hundred meters my head torch mm. stopped working and it was quite a steep area <clears throat> and very old ropes all shredded so they were there more for mental comfort than anything else really mm. so what happened was that because I was quite pissed off with those guys <laughs> because they'd left before and it was
0: it was dark it, it, it was, was dark, dark. Yes. it was
1: dark yes. no moon um, mm. They kept going and I was left behind, basically trying to fix my head torch. No. Yes, yes, and I ran out of oxygen and I couldn't go up or down because it was too dark. And so I had no choice but to go back A- down. And obviously to... didn't want
0: to rely on the ropes either because they right. old and That's tall. right, that's yeah. Yeah. right. Yeah, and I couldn't yeah.
1: see anything. And um, they went on to the summit and, yeah, came back to the last camp where I was and... Uh, I was devastated, as you can imagine, but I also realised that it was all my fault, you know. I was the one who had not communicated well with these guys. I should have said there was something wrong, but because I was pissed off at them, (laughs) I didn't. And I almost died, of course, of
0: hypothermia. Well, yeah, exactly. But I, I I read a quote from you that said that you think it was your anger at them that kind of kept you alive I think, during oh, that yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And trying <laughs> to plan rage, the next the burning time. <laughs> rage.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it worked well. It kept me alive.
0: <laughs> uh, so obviously then you headed back down and then... That's right, the end number of that trip. yeah. number four. Yeah.
1: So number three, I, I had enough of Tibet by then, so I went um, to Nepal the next time without John because it's... Climbing Everest from Nepal involved going through the ice fall, and as he had equipped the ice fall um, during the bicentennial expedition, mm-hmm. he knew exactly what it was all about. It's a very, very dangerous place, and you don't want to spend more time than you're supposed to in that place.
0: So for people who don't know about it, what, what, what makes it so very dangerous?
1: The Icefall is the continuation of the Western Coombe, which is where Camp 1 and Camp 2 are on the way to the Lhotse Face, which mm-hmm. then leads to Camp 4 on the South Col and the top of Everest. Now, it's, it's like a frozen river. It goes over an edge and it's all broken down. You've got huge holes, you've got instable fields of ice. It's... Basically, it moves all the time, and through that, you've got ladders over crevasses, going to the top of ice towers, and and you you have to really remember that any of those bits can collapse on top of you at any time. So going, I've to... seen
0: I've seen some video footage of it looks like I think it might have been you across one of the ladders with just nothing underneath, and you've got your, 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 your obviously you've got your crampons on, and it just looks so treacherous. That yes. would be a feat in itself just mentally getting yourself across one of those ladders, I would think.
1: Yeah, yeah. There was there was a fair bit of uh, bleep, bleep, bleep <laughs> <laughs> in that video as well.
0: I think I did hear <laughs> a few of those, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah, very scary. So... Um, John didn't so I can want understand why you through. wouldn't
0: want to spend any more yeah, time there.
1: Yeah. 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 So I decided to go without him, which was totally fine because I, by that stage, you know, I've done enough mountaineering to trust my capabilities and mm. my willingness to stay alive and turn back if needed, which mm. I've never had any hesitation in doing. And so 96, well, guess what? 96 was a big tragedy on Everest. Um, mm. There was a big storm uh, with two big teams on the south Col that went for the summit when they shouldn't and 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 where they're too late in the day got into trouble coming down because there was a storm every afternoon clockwise you know like clockwork, like clockwork yeah and so a lot of people died and I was on the South Col when all that happened and we did whatever we could with the very little information we had to help where we could, but mm. it didn't stop so, eight people on our side to die.
0: And did, am I right in thinking that 11 people on the other side died as well? Uh, that, no, there was yeah. 11 total, no. yeah. 11 total, right. Yeah, that's just, I don't know how that must feel to, and I imagine these are people that you knew or had met, and to know <laughs> that, that that was happening is just part of your community is gone.
1: Not at all, because those people were, part of uh, two expeditions that were the top of the range expeditions, There was an American one and a Kiwi one. And Mm -hmm. we basically had nothing to do with them. Um, I was part of a a shoestring expeditions led by Henry Todd, a friend of mine from England. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we were there because we knew, or most of us knew what to do, how to look after ourselves on the mountain. And he was providing the infrastructure at base camp and the oxygen and all that, and you know, a couple of Sherpas to carry this and that, but not much compared to the top of the range expeditions. So no, I didn't know anyone in, in the people who died.
0: Okay, so mm. even then, do you have a sense of if if you can help, you should help, or is it a, is it really kind of every man for himself when you're up at that at that altitude and you know what the consequences are if you get into trouble, kind of thing? What what is that what is that sense when you're on the mountain?
1: I think it depends on who you are and why you're there. Mm. I, I I know that we did what we could to help. In fact, you know, we offered to go up the mountain, uh, but we were told that it was all under control. Um, I started helping, um, uh, back weathers, um, I started uh, helping him down the ropes with the group that was looking after him and then I was told to bugger off. Um, oh. And I believe it's...
0: By been, the group? Uh, by, by, the
1: group by the guides who were in wow. charge of the operation. Not not in those terms, of course. It was nicely said. Yeah, of but of But I wasn't putting anyone in danger and I think I was helping him because I was right beside him coming down. But I don't know. I think there was something about a shoestring expedition helping an expensive expedition that didn't go down well. I don't know. There was lots of... You know, on big mountains, when you're talking about a lot of money, politics always comes into it. Yeah. But anyway, that was 96, so it didn't get up that time. And of course... um, it was it was a time for reflection as well. Although we wanted to go back up the mountain, and, and some people did. Uh, there was um, an IMAX expedition there, and they did go back up and filmed um, their film, which uh, yeah. became very famous after that.
0: Mm.
1: But anyway, that left me without summit again. Um, went back the next year, ninety seven, and this time to make things interesting, our expedition died. At ba- expedition leader died at base camp. I know, something always happens, doesn't it? Big mountains,
0: they have a, a way to throw things at you. Yes, mm. they really, cha- really challenge you and you know, determination. Um, that must have, I would imagine that would have really knocked the wind out of your sails?
1: Um, it did and it didn't. Once again, commercial expedition, didn't know many people on the trip and um, mm-hmm. hadn't really met malduff the guy who was leading the trip. So we had a big wake for him at base camp and we kept going with um, someone else in charge of the group. The weather was really bad, though, and pretty much everyone left the mountain. Um, It was only towards the end that there was a tiny window of good weather and by then there was practically no one left in my group. There was just um, um, one Mexican climber um, Andres Delgado, Andres Delgado, and myself on on the Everest team, and um, a few Sherpas, of course, who were still there. Okay. So we ended up climbing Everest right right at the end of the season. Andres climbed it the day before I did, and we got there. I got there with um, Keeper Sherpa and Dorje Sherpa, who mm-hmm. um, I think they decided to come with me because no Australian woman had climbed Everest. Yeah. And because all that happened, I had no idea who was going to come with me. It was like, you know, the Sherpas do what they want to do. They tell you exactly what's going to happen because they've, they've decided. <laughs> wow, well, you
0: kind of feel like it would be the other way around, but it makes of course that makes sense. It know, does make sense. And it was yeah. the same
1: leading expeditions uh, teaching people to climb afterwards. Um, you let the Sherpas sort it out themselves. And even if you're the mm. leader like I was, it's like, Trust, Delegate, they know what they're doing and yeah. just put in your word if only it's it's needed. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, uh, we were the last one to climb the mountain that year and it almost didn't happen because it snowed heavily uh, the night we were on the south Coal, then it stopped snowing and we got out there at one o'clock in the morning in deep snow, um, really hard work as you can imagine, um, hardly any ropes um, to go to the summit and got to the summit eventually which was really bizarre because i felt i was in a dream i Mm. had this hillary step that i'd seen so many times in book in fact i painted it as well you know i would made a painting of the hillary step Uh. and there i was on the hillary step and then that slope that goes uh, to the summit it was it was it was very special you know thinking about it that was the place where I was so happy to get to a summit and relieved as well because it had been long in the making, nine years mm, yes, from nine
0: years. when
1: I started on the Seven Summit Quest. I did make a mistake though, you know, in my excitement of being up there and filming and talking to my camera and thanking all the people who had helped me uh, and also telling people to look after Australia because there's only one Australia. Um
0: uh, I heard that yeah. yeah
1: oh it it just came out <laughs> and it you're right i was yeah. I felt
0: very proud. I was like, mm. yes, absolutely we we should
1: mm. yeah. so anyway, I had my oxygen mask off, and after an hour of of you know e p. yahoo on the summit, <laughs> um we had to come down, and I realized that. Taking my oxygen off for an hour on the top of the house mountain on Earth hadn't been a good idea at all. Mm. I got pulmonary edema. I couldn't oh. breathe. Unfortunately, my head wasn't affected, so after a while, I asked um, Kipa and doji to find a bit of rope and to have me on a leash for the rest of uh, the climb down to uh, the South Pole.
0: So, is that... Um... Is that a dangerous thing for both parties? Then, if, if you know if someone slips, and the other one is is likely to go as well. So is that?
1: No, because when the. Um- you looking after someone who's not well, and I didn't slip or anything, but it no. could have happened. Um, mm-hmm. You put a very short rope between you and them so you can catch okay. them straight away. If you had a yeah, long right. rope, you know, if you could have a swing or whatever, but yes. yeah, that's, that's why I it's see. called a leash. It's really, you have someone on a leash. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then the next morning they went down and I took my time coming down because I couldn't, I couldn't breathe and I couldn't lie down. Mm. And I ended up uh, coming down on my own, and I was the last one on the mountain, and that was very, very special.
0: What was special about that to you?
1: There was no one around, and I had just finished my Seven Summit quest. Mm. So I was able to sit and really be in the moment and really, really appreciate the fact that it was done. It was, it was wow. relief. Um, I wasn't happy or proud yet because I still had to go through the ice before getting back to base camp. But when mm. I sat at came to in the Western Coombe with no one around and I looked around and it was just so beautiful and perfect and I thought, wow, I'm never going to be back here again.
0: Mm-hmm. And I,
1: I didn't need to because, you know, it was all there for me in a way and, and I was just so grateful. Mm.
0: And to, take, and to be able to take that time to just, yeah, I guess drink it all in and appreciate it and, and reflect. It
1: that's right, on oh my own. I mean, you cannot even contemplate doing that these days. It's too many no, people. No, that's
0: exactly right. There's way too many people. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. So it was a precious moment.
0: Mm. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. to australia then um i'm assuming oh yeah Um, yeah, yeah Mm -hmm. and like so many i've spoken to so many different adventurers um and they say that after achieving a a monumentous goal like that um, obviously there's the euphoria um, and the sense of achievement having completed it but then there's an emptiness that settles in on them because they don't know what they're doing next or quite how to adapt back to um normal life where when they're not working towards a goal like that. Was that something that you struggled with as well or or wasn't the case?
1: Um, I did later on, but not then because basically life was dream of a mountain, make it happen, climb it, come mm. back down, dream that... of, a, of another mountain. It was always about the next mountain. Mm. And mm. for me, the next mountain was going to be Makalu. Makalu mm. was a very special mountain because, first of all, it's beautiful. It also had history. Um, John had lost his best friend, Mark Moorhead, in 1983. He fell down as he was um, on an expedition with uh, Peter Hillary. Mm. And so it always had that sadness attached to it. And I wanted to make it a happy mountain again. And I wanted to climb an 8,000-meter peak without Sherpas and without oxygen.
0: Yeah, right.
1: And it all fell into place. I joined a trip which was um, organised by Jeanette Harrison and Gary Fisterer. Jeanette Harrison being a a super high altitude climber from Britain and Gary from the States. And everything was going really well, you know. And I had a friend, um, Michael Jurgensen, who was supposed to climb with me. He's from Denmark. But somehow we didn't end up on the same expedition. And I met him on the mountain, but he was climbing with someone else, and so was I. I was climbing with another friend, Billy Pearson from the States. And Billy and I were just about to go for the summit, having um, arrested base camp after carrying high on a mountain. Mm-hmm. And my friend, Michael, who had been climbing with a member of our team, um, Marcus Stoffer, a super climber from uh, Germany, I think, or Austria, I can't remember. Anyway, um, they went for the summit, and Michael was killed coming back down. And that was the first time that I'd lost someone very close to me because Michael had become a very good friend. We'd gone through the 96 South Gold uh, debacle together. Right. And we'd we'd become really close, basically. Um, Very good friends. And he died. And I couldn't even get back on the mountain. You know, I left everything there and I went home. Yeah, and that was the end of my high altitude climbing.
0: The end, full stop. The end, full no, stop. Never, that was never it. Never to do it again. No, no, what? it was too sad. Uh, uh, wow. Uh, I mean, I can, I can imagine it is, but to just put a full stop to that period of your life must have been. Yeah.
1: I had no choice. You know, I ended up uh, going back to Kathmandu um, and meeting with Michael's parents and his sister and nephew. And it's, it's very different when you're on the other side, when, when someone you love dies on a mountain. If, when it's yeah. someone you know, we, you know the, the, we were always saying, well, if someone dies in a car accident, you don't stop driving. But it's yeah. all very well and good. But when it's someone you love who dies on a mountain, it's a completely different story. And in some ways, I think it saved my life because, you know, so many people I know have died climbing yes. on big mountains.
0: What do you do then if that has been your life for so many years? How do you redirect yourself? What do you what do? do?
1: Well, I grieved for quite a long time. I did try to get into something else, um... um I did a couple of, or just crossing with John in Australia Mm -hmm. and our little dog, Seraphine. I remember
0: it. Yeah. (laughs) And
1: um, I went to Antarctica and did um, the last degree to the South Pole thinking, oh, I want to do a new route in Antarctica, but I was all really uh, half-hearted. And Mm -hmm. and then, you know, John and I ended up um, divorcing. And that became a big expedition. Um, it's something that takes a lot of energy. Yes. And eventually I realised that I didn't need to push myself physically anymore to grow. And I just went along with the flow. I, I got into arts in a big way. I did a lot of painting and drawing. Mm-hmm. And then I fell in love with a village in uh, Nepal um, through, I was teaching people high-altitude climbing because it's, there's nothing better than to share what you know when you know it's going to help people achieve their mm. dreams. I've always loved that, and I still love it, even though I don't teach people high-altitude climbing anymore. Now I take them to a village that has changed my life, and that was through a Nepali um, Tamang person who was working on a trip with me, teaching those people to climb, like Patamang from Lura in uh, the the Sulu area. That's the region just below the Everest region. Mm -hmm. He invited me to go and stay with his family in this small village of um, subsistence farmers. And my life changed forever. I I started to realise that personal goals are very important as long as you need them. But then opening yourself up to a common goal, which is being part of a community and helping people and feeling the love in giving and receiving, is extraordinary. So I've, I've had a connection with Laura um, since I first went there in 2007. I've been filming. I'm still grappling with making a documentary out of all the footage that I have, and I've been going there with groups, doing community treks, and I've got a yoga track coming up. Well, it was supposed to be this year, but I think it's uh, going to be next year now.
0: I think, yes, I think there's not much hope of it this year. So when you say helping the community, what what type of – what are you doing? What type of work are you doing there?
1: I um – well, it all depends what they want, basically, because I I, I don't believe in um, the colonial approach of we know no, better, imp- we know what's imposing. good for you. <laughs> mm, yes. So it was a question of asking them, and they wanted to learn to read and write. Uh, mm-hmm. This is the woman of the village, because I mean they're the one who look after the land, and I always thought, well, you are so important, women. Um, you're the ones at home. I mean, the men are out, you know, trying to earn money, whether it's in the Middle East or on treks, and you don't yeah. want to look after the place and the children and everything.
0: Mm. And
1: you don't have an education. You don't know how mm. to read or write in your own language. And to me, to be able to process information available, that was the first step. And they were keen to, to learn to read and write, so I fundraised through my website, and uh, they had, um, yeah, the full learning with locals because uh, once again, it's about empowering locals and women. So local trainers were trained to um, help them. And then they did empowerment courses. And now each time I've gone back because it seems absolutely impossible to communicate wishes when you're not there. (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't matter if you've got internet, telephone or anything, it's yes. like you've gotta be there and ask the questions. Face yourself. to face. Oh yeah, yeah this is Nepal. <laughs> 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 and that's the beauty of it you know you don't know what's going to happen then you go with the flow and something always happens it's gorgeous that's the
0: thing. you do have to let yourself go with the flow don't you, you oh yes uh, yeah go yeah, yeah. sort of a rigid approach no nope, nope.
1: this is not a school class you know it's 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 <laughs> the real world and you have to flow with it yeah and of course taking groups it's not always easy because people expect um to have what what whatever the expectations are met and I always try to do my best with that and sometimes it's just a question of just relaxing yeah and enjoying well, being modifying there. Modifying
0: expectations yeah yeah to yeah, yeah, the, yeah to see yeah. the environment definitely. that's right
1: yeah and so in 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 the latest um latest trips I've taken there we've helped with um getting water to the forestry groups place so they can grow um Trees. They built a community centre because the women wanted a place to meet. Um, and well, it's it's gone to a bit of a stop now. We were going to we were looking into health as one of the next um, aims. But since COVID nineteen has entered the scene, um, I'm not sure when I'm going to be there next. And mm. you know, it's more about feeding people right now. So I've been thinking about perhaps t- starting um, a fundraising to help feed the families of Laura. Of course, they can grow their own food, but you can't grow everything. You can't grow rice no. there or oil and you know, all those things that are needed to have a reasonably mm. balanced diet.
0: Yep, definitely. Um, when you're not there um, and you're at home, you're, you're, you live in Victoria still, mm-hmm. don't you? Mm-hmm. Um, how connected are you to your local community, given that community is, you know, pretty important part of, of life for people?
1: Well, I think that spending time in Lura really opened my eyes to the fact that Nadiemark is not just a base camp for me, it's also a very special community. And... The simple way to become part of a community is to volunteer. So that's mm. that's what I've been doing. I started with volunteering with the Nadimak Community Energy Group. But my idea was to meet new people and somehow all the people who were involved with that organisation I already knew... <laughs> So it was like mm, let's start I'm again Shared
0: about the same thing.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, lots of climbers and I wanted to learn more about the other people in the community because there's there's a story to every one of us and and I'm very curious about hearing it and to see what people have learned in their life. And so I joined the Rapalese Historical Society and I've been happily ensconced there for the last two years, uh, using my training as a ABC Radio producer to do podcasts and interviews with um, all the people in the community and to collect their stories.
0: Fantastic. So if people who are listening today wanted to hear you, um, how would they find those podcasts?
1: Well, I've put everything on my Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash forward Brigitte Muir. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of pod- podcasts there and I and also write a blog and share stories with people, whether it's about what happens in my life and what I call the adventures in life, because it's, you know, you don't have to be on an expedition to a faraway land to have an adventure. You can have it in everyday life. It just depends on the way you look at things.
0: Well, that was actually going to be my my sort of closing question to you. Um, If someone wants to have an adventurous life, again, it doesn't have to be big mountains. Is it more a mindset of, of, you know, setting a goal and working towards it and achieving it, do you think?
1: Yeah, well, it depends where you are at in your life. Um, I think it's about getting out of your comfort zone, whatever that may be. Mm. And it's for each of us to decide what that is and... What the opportunities around are, and we are surrounded by opportunities. We just have to open our eyes and our heart to them.
0: Well, it has been a wonderful, wonderful surprise talking to you today, and um, I want to thank you so much for sharing um, those chapters of your life. And hopefully, we can catch up again and um, hear more about what you're, what you've been doing.
1: Thank you, thank you, and also, oh, I would like to mention that um, I am married again to a non-climber. <laughs> <laughs> A beautiful man called Eric from New Orleans, of all places. Oh. <laughs> and he is really helping me grow.
0: And obviously he's very understanding of the tent situation.
1: <laughs> he is, Yep.
0: <yeah>. He is. <laughs> all right. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us today and um, hopefully we'll, we'll catch up again with you soon. Thank you, Liz. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au slash Talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening and hear you next time.